reason uh, it's good to be here tonight, is that I don't have alongside me an interpreter. I assume you don't need an interpreter. Uh, But having in recent months been to Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Palestine and Croatia and Poland and Northeast India and Texas... Uh, It is really good not to have an interpreter here. Uh, There actually is a place called Amarillo, and my wife Janet and I were in Amarillo for a gathering. There are five million Baptists in Texas alone, and uh, we were there for their annual uh, gathering. So they understood me uh, very well. They always want to know, have you met the Queen? Um, And things like that. A A few years ago, I was in Africa preaching, and I had three interpreters So the congregation got home that night, much later than you will be home uh, this evening. And at one point, I'd been on the road for two or three weeks, and on that occasion, my wife wasn't with me. And I actually said, I'm very homesick, and I'm looking forward to being with my beautiful wife. Well, the first translator was French, so beautiful wife, as you imagine, goes quite well into French. The next one was Lingala, and I understand from the missionaries at the back that that translator coped fairly well. The third was Swahili. And somewhere between French and Swahili, my beautiful wife went missing. And I only learned afterwards that what the Swahili translator said when I said I'm missing my beautiful wife was the interpreter said David is missing his big fat mama, which which was not what I said, but I suppose it sort of conveyed the emotion. I've been privileged in the ministry responsibilities I carry to visit uh, somewhere over 70 nations of the world. I have to say to you that whilst this isn't true everywhere, what I observe in most of the nations are what I sense is true here in Winchester this evening. And that is that people have a passion about following Jesus Christ. They have a passion about meaningful relationships in the body of Christ And they have a passion for getting stuck into God's mission in the world. And as I come among you this weekend, and for the first time here, I didn't know until uh, Friday or Saturday anything about Winchester Passion. I sense that the things that I've observed around the world are the passions that are undergirding your life together as Christians here in Winchester. You have a passion for Winchester Passion because you're serious about following Jesus, you're committed to warm, meaningful relationships in the body of Christ, and you want to follow God and his footsteps into the world of Winchester. And I want to assure you my prayers will be with you. Um, I can't promise I'll be here on Good Friday. I'm going to have to check my diary. But I will tell you this, that wherever I travel in the United Kingdom, I'm going to say to people, without any exaggeration, something significant is happening here in Winchester. And I would always say to a group of Christians such as yourselves, never ever take for granted good relationships between Christians. God's given you this as a gift, and you're using that gift, as Jesus did with his disciples, to freely, freely give. And I just pray that uh, you will guard that gift and use it under the Lord's direction. Now, I've chosen the passage that uh, David uh, read, uh, that first sermon of Jesus in Nazareth, that wonderful moment when he knew that he was anointed by the Spirit, anointed for a specific task, to be a preacher of good news to the poor. 
To be someone who would bring liberty to those who are captive in their sin. To bring sight to the blind. Freedom to the oppressed. And to proclaim the great Old Testament promise of the Jubilee year. When debts would be cancelled. Land restored. And people would be given the chance of a new beginning. I want to happen, that to happen in my town. Where I live in Didcot in Oxfordshire. I'm sure that's what you're praying for the city of Winchester. Now this was a unique moment. But what I want to do is to take some of the things that I believe characterize this day and give them to you as Christians here in Winchester. And I hope it will inspire you as you prepare for Winchester Passion and the years beyond. Here's the first thing that I notice characterized the spirit-anointed Christ on this day in Nazareth. The first thing I want to say to you is face the world. As I look out on this congregation this evening, uh, you're, you're a flesh and blood congregation. You've got human histories. Every one of you has got a life story. And we need to remember that when Jesus came preaching in Nazareth, it was a real life congregation. It was a congregation with stories. There were farmers who were deeply bothered about their own agricultural industry. They were ground down by an unjust tax system which was operated by people like Zacchaeus. And they felt helpless against the power of the state. You had pious believers like Simeon and Anna, who knew all the promises of Scripture, and they were saying, Lord, fulfill those promises in our time. Rend the heavens and come down. Send that Messiah that you promised. There were people who've been present in every generation, godly people like Elizabeth and Zechariah, serving in the temple. And in every one of the temples of God, which you represent here this evening, there will be faithful people who don't stand up and do what I'm doing, but without their contribution of serving in the temple of God, the whole system would collapse. They would have been there in the congregation. There were politically motivated people. People like Simon the Zealot, who when they got up in the morning till they went to bed at night, they were bloodthirsty to get rid of the Roman army who were oppressing the occupiers. In fact, if you look into the history of the Zealots, these politically motivated people believed that the only way to get freedom for the people of the land was in fact for there to be bloodletting, even to the point where they were prepared to kill their own relatives. That's in the annals, it's well recorded. And people representing that movement would have been in and around the congregation when Jesus came preaching in Nazareth. There would have been thinking people like Nicodemus, whose head was stacked full of theological knowledge. If he wanted to know anything about history and traditions of the Jewish tradition, Nicodemus could have given you that if he had two or three hours to spare. He wasn't always able to draw the connections between what the word said and what, what God was doing in the day. And above all, somehow the heart and the head had not quite become connected. But he was open, as we know, to talk with Jesus. There were guilty people. We know them in the New Testament like Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well and a host of others that are unnamed. Who has people in Winchester, people here maybe, tonight, had messed their lives up? All of us go through life making wrong decisions. And some people make one or two bad decisions which affects their life and damages a whole family for decades. And these people were saying, how can I make a new beginning? How can I start again? 
and turn the page and have a clean page. And in that congregation at Nazareth, there would be people and family representatives of people like that. There would be people who were oppressed and anxious. People who had spent all their money on the then National Health Service and still no cure had come. The woman with bleeding. The woman in the synagogue who could never see the face of the preacher. All the time she was bent low. She only knew people by their feet. And people like that would have been represented the day that Jesus came preaching. And I'll tell you what, Jesus would not have been the effective preacher if he hadn't faced that world. The world of oppression. The world of unjust systems. I think it's an amazing thing. And write this on your hearts here in Winchester. Those of you who know Winchester so much, you know the injustice that sometimes walks the streets of Winchester and Hampshire and beyond. Jesus went to the house of the person who had been, if you like, the mafia boss of all that was wrong with the taxation system. And he turned the situation around. Salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus and money came back into the pockets of the poor. That's preaching the gospel. That's facing the world as it is. Not locked away in some pious cocoon, simply saying, Lord, bless our city. But getting involved, meat and potato stuff, face, facing up to the world. I love the, the story of how Jesus met that woman at the well. Why did Jesus come at midday? Well, because most women, most women with a, a background that you could be proud of, came early in the morning before the sun came up, or they came late in the evening when the sun came down. You only came to the well at lunchtime if you had something to hide. And in the account, John says there were only two people who were present. Jesus and the woman who had a lot to hide. And he went into her world. He faced that world. As I listened to the three things David gave you to ponder, I think the third probably is the most difficult. It's easier to volunteer to become a member of uh, Ewan's technical team than to find the courage to ask three people, will you come and walk the passion and will you come to church on Easter Day? And by the end of the evening, I hope we'll have resolved that particular difficulty. Face the world. There's a time to pray, there's a time to worship and there's a time to get stuck in. So I was uh, sitting down this afternoon and reflecting on some of the things I wanted to say to you. This won't hit everybody, but I hope it might hit some of you. I I thought that some of you here must be in the caring professions. And the challenge to you is to face that world which sometimes depresses you. I've got enough friends in the caring profession to know what I'm talking about. The absence of the vocational calling. The tremendous burden of target performance. But I have friends in the caring professions who said as they face that world, however difficult it is, they're able to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to serve you here. I've got business friends. People concerned about a downturn in the economic performance of the land. People who have got to take difficult decisions which will affect the livelihoods of hundreds of people. And God has enabled them to face that world Not turn their backs and somehow hope somebody else will take the decision. But God's put upon them the burden of taking a just and a compassionate decision. 
And they've offered the prayer to the Lord as they face their world of business. Lord, I'll serve you here. People involved in politics and media. Very aware that the, in the public eye, there's a very low currency for those in politics and media. A lack of trust. Yes, they are aware that there are dishonest and manipulative people who work alongside them. But there are hundreds and thousands more colleagues Some who share their faith, some who don't, who are committed to serving the public with a new service in other ways. I know Christians in that world who say, Lord, I want to face this world because I want to serve you in that world. Teachers and youth workers. Sometimes tempted to walk away. If I had a pound for every time as I travel the country on the door, somebody has come up to me and said, you know, I don't know how I can go in and take another week in that school, in that college, in that workplace. I feel like an alien. I feel as though I've landed from Mars. The language, the lifestyle, it's so alien. And you're torn between what sometimes you see in the school and sometimes what you read in the newspapers. A generation out there that sometimes writes off the younger generation. Think that all they're involved in, drink and drugs and alcohol and violence and sex. and, And yet the Lord has said, I'm going to help you to face that world. I'm going to say to you, I want to give you the vocation of sharing values and shaping the lives of a future generation. Lord, I'm going to serve you here. And then there's my generation. As my grandson said to his grandma the other day, Grandma, what was it like in the black and white days? (laughs) Well, for those of us who are black and white, who can remember the moment that Hillary and Tenzing conquered Everest, and we saw with about 53 other people in a small living room on a small television set, the coronation. I want to say to your generation, face this strange world that has altered so radically. You don't like the spiritual ignorance. It disturbs your heart to know that people don't know where Jesus was born at Bethlehem and what happened on Good Friday. And do what many of my senior citizen friends have done. They form midweek prayer groups. And they actually pray for the world that they are so deeply concerned about. They don't turn their backs on it. They pray for it. They face it. And you could do that in Winchester as you approach Winchester Passion. They pray to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, because you walk this earth, you know the oppression and the evil and the greed. And you know the spiritual injustice. Lord, help us, we pray, even as you and has helped me to discover my notes. Thank you very, very much. I'm saying to you this evening, face God's world, even as Jesus in Nazareth came and faced that world of need. Here's the second thing. Second thing is to share God's heart. I see that in the Nazareth sermon. A boy uh, stood in the kitchen one day and he turned to his mum and he said, Mum, where did I get my intelligence from? So his mum said, well, she said, it it must have been your dad. Because I still have mine. (laughs) There are many things that you inherit from your parents' grandparents. Those who knew my mum and dad, who are both in heaven now, they they will often say, I can see your dad in you, I can see your mum in you. There are some things that are not inherited genetically, they are passed on. 
we pass on to each generation spiritual truths and wisdom. With my four grandchildren, I um, have a way of trying to say what it means to understand God's heart. I'll say, what's God's favorite number? So they'll go through all the possibilities. Twelve for the twelve disciples, four for the four gospels, forty for the years that people wandered in the wilderness. And I say, no, none of those. God's favorite number is number one. Because each one is loved by God. Each one is special. Each one is cherished. I don't need to teach you that here as a congregation. But I'll tell you what, the congregation at Nazareth had forgotten God's favorite number. How do I know that? Because of the passage that Jesus chose. Jesus chose to speak from Isaiah 61, and as soon as the passage was announced, people rubbed their hands with glee. It was one of their favorite passages. Spoke about the time when Messiah would come, and there would be good news, and the day of Jubilee, and freedom and liberty, and that people would be made well again. And, but there was a punchline in Isaiah 61, check it out for yourselves, that when Jesus preached on it in Nazareth, he left out the punchline. So you've got to be saying to yourselves, what made the congregation angry? What made this congregation rise up and say, kill the preacher? Something had to be said in the sermon which made them angry. And this is what made them angry. In Isaiah 61, it talks about, and the day of vengeance of our God. It was a day which, in Jesus' time, people thought this was when God would pour out his anger on all those who weren't righteous like us. Anybody who didn't tow God's line, they would be swept into the sea. Not only the Romans, but everybody immoral, everybody who just didn't line up, anybody not like us. And you know what I mean when I say us. And of course, just to make sure that they hadn't misunderstood, Jesus, by his exposition, makes sure. It's a very graphic phrase when it says heaven was shut up for three and a half years. I mean, just imagine, here you are encouraging people to pray for Winchester Passion. You imagine, it was one of the lowest points in the period of the history of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. We began with talking about the days of Elijah and Elisha. They were not happy days. Take the words of Jesus from Luke 4, for three and a half years, three years, six months, heaven was shut up. The windows and the doors of heaven were not open to pour down the grace upon those who were praying. That must have been difficult times for believers. Some of you who are older in the faith will know what it is like to go through that time of spiritual famine. You're about to enter a harvest time. God, keep all of you close to himself. Humble. Dependent upon him for the blessing that you can just smell coming over the horizon. But in the day that Jesus was talking about, heaven's doors and windows shut for three and a half years. Now that made them angry to be reminded that there was a time when God didn't do anything for the people of Israel. But listen, there were two glorious grace exceptions in that period of three and a half years. God chose when nothing else was happening to widow women in the country belonging to the Jews. He chose to choose a poor Gentile woman and visited her house with grace and mercy. And the second person... Remember, to an occupied country of the first century, hating the Romans, Jesus chose the example of a military commander by the name of Naaman. 
And this man was a leper, a wealthy man, a militarily powerful man. And God's grace came down upon that Gentile military commander leper man. Can you imagine how the congregation felt? Who had forgotten that God's favorite number is number one, that he loves every human being made in his image. He cherishes everybody. And here's Jesus reminding us that God loves those who are outsiders. I want to say to you this evening how important I think it is. It's not stating the obvious, if you think with me, that you here in Winchester as Christians must share God's heart. Shall I tell you something? I sense there is a growing anger. It's a quiet, but it's a seething anger in the land. How do I know that? There are sections of my family who don't share my faith. And we meet with them from time to time in family gatherings. Last week there was a family gathering up in the north of England and at Christmas time another family gathering. And, and when they begin to uh, share openly after we've got over the hellos and thank you for your present, they tell me how they feel about this land. And what worries me is whenever I hear people who belong to Jesus Christ reflecting that particular resentment. Lock them up, keep them out, punish and exclude. I can live with the judgmentalism which exists in wider society, but I become deeply, deeply concerned when judgmentalism begins to permeate the church. However difficult it may be to have this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have received, out there for some very unlikely candidates, It's not going to be a picnic, you know, these next few months. I remember in Mitcham in South London, a group of Christians praying in the way that you're going to pray. They say, Lord, will you save the biggest sinners in Mitcham and send them to our churches? And they live to regret that prayer. Some of those people turned their lives inside out. Some of those people began to take 90% of their time as they were on their way to being not simply saved but salvaged from all that the world had done in their lives. You're going public with Winchester Passion and there will be a price to pay, not as big as the price, but you can never walk in the footsteps of Jesus and share God's heart and there isn't a cost to bear. I think it's remarkable, this, that Jesus is known as a man in whom there was no sin and yet he was also known as the friend of sinners. I can only pray for my heart, Lord, I would... I would love to be that kind of Christian walking the streets of the town where I live. I'd love to think I was a man who was on the way to being fully saved and sanctified, but also known as the friend of sinners. And in this current age, if we're going to share God's heart, we have to banish the judgmentalism that says, well, you can, you you can become a follower of Jesus, but you have to clean up your act. And when you've done that, then perhaps you're a candidate too. It doesn't work like that. What's God's favorite number? You and Number one. Number three is display God's courage. I've had wonderful hospitality today. We were at the United Church this morning and that was really a a great welcome from Howard and his congregation. At lunchtime we were with Howard and Rosie and other families and we had a a Nigella Lawson recipe. Are you impressed? (laughs) And this evening in this lovely building here A friend of mine told me the story of how he went to a house that gave him hospitality and they were obviously quite nervous about his coming. 
Uh, and later he discovered this was true because the mother, in wanting the house to be absolutely perfect, during the week leading up to when this guest would arrive, she had put notices all around the house. Keep this place tidy, remember to tidy up, and so on. The problem is she forgot to take down all the notices. <laughs> so when this friend of mine went into the bathroom for the first time to use the facilities, there was a huge notice which said, if you use these towels, I will kill you. <laughs> but he took great courage and uh, made himself at home. I want to just a couple of minutes talk to you about courage. Jesus didn't need to preach on Isaiah 61. He was a boy who'd grown up in the town of Nazareth and well known through the carpenter's trade. If you ever go to Nazareth, by the way, seven years ago they opened the Nazareth village. It's the most amazing project. Huge amount of money that's gone into it. It's now used by schools and all sorts of people. It's created a village such as would have been in the time of, of Jesus. So when he came to his home village synagogue, he could have chosen Psalm 23, the Lord is your shepherd. Could have chosen another psalm which talked about the kingship of, of the Lord looking after his own. But he went head on, courageously, because he knew what God was saying to him. He had to say these things to this congregation who had hardened their hearts towards God's word and had no respect for Jesus, his person, who he was. Let me just remind you that you're part, especially through the week of prayer for Christian unity, you're part of a world family. And there will be Christians in Mozambique today who with great courage have borne witness to Jesus Christ. I didn't see any secret police from Winchester noting, taking photographs as we came in tonight. Christians in Kenya. Christians in Cuba. Christians in Vietnam. I could go on and give you a litany of places where unless you're prepared to display courage then you don't survive as a Christian church. But listen, you must have courage to serve the Lord in Winchester. I think it takes courage to be in the world of work because God will be speaking to you through today and he will tell you what you've got to do this week. As a pastor, I take more pastors' conferences than ever before and the number of pastors who come up to me at the end and say do you know David I know what I've got to do but I'm frightened of what the people will do to me in the family the number of situations I've seen turned around because somebody in the family has had the courage to confront a situation that has held a family back for years I just want to remind you that there are basic rules about being courageous for Jesus Christ the number one rule is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of people. Number two, you speak the words that God gives you. That was the secret of Jesus' ministry. In fact, he said, I cannot, I cannot do anything unless I see the Father doing it. I only speak the words that the Father has given me. It should be no different for us. And the third rule, this is the difficult one. Sometimes God does ask us to overturn the tables of the money changes. And our problem is that we know what we ought to do. It's not the overturning of the tables in home, family, church, business, wherever. It's what happens after the tables are overturned. 
I know what I need to do. But will you show me, Lord, the aftermath? What kind of mess will be revealed if I display the kind of courage you're asking me to display? Well, number one, I'm not asking you to display the courage. We're simply walking in the footsteps of Jesus who could have taken the soft option in that synagogue on that day and chosen a quieter passage. He chose the passage God gave him. And if God is writing the script for your life, then in one of the key areas of life, family, work, church, there will come the time when courage has to be demonstrated. And God will give you a greater fear of him than of the faces that you have to face. Were you aware that most of the great advances in the life of the church through 2,000 years have always been opposed by the church initially. And were you aware of most of the greatest advances in the church of Jesus Christ and its mission, life and witness through 2,000 years have always been advanced by courageous leaders? That when the establishment said, not on your life and over our dead bodies, sometimes it was. Letter written to a newspaper The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many new songs. You can't learn them all. They put too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. The preceding generation got along perfectly well without it. Written in 1723, (laughs) attacking Isaac Watts, the writer of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It takes courage to see the new things that God is doing. And I'm saying to you the third thing I see in that ministry of Jesus is a display of godly courage. And the fourth and final thing, I see that in addition to facing God's world and sharing God's heart and displaying godly courage, the transformation of God's world. You see, where does this passage end? Does it end where David stopped reading at Chapter 4 and verse 30. And they tried to kill him, but passing through their midst, he went on his way. Or does Luke intend, as I think he does, that we should read on? Basically what he's done in chapter 4 is he's drawn a contrast of two congregations. One's called Nazareth, hard-hearted, unbelieving, no recognition of the authority of Jesus. Nazareth tried to kill the preacher. He moves to Capernaum. Capernaum, humble, open-hearted, respecting God's word, listen eagerly to Jesus, respect his authority, what happens? Nothing happens in Nazareth. Everything happens in Capernaum. Some of the things in Capernaum happen before the service is over, such as the grace and conviction and work of the Holy Spirit moving around. And there's that lovely scene at lunchtime when they go back to the house and somebody says, there's a sick lady upstairs. It's Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus goes up and she's made whole. Everything that Luke draws is a contrast between nothing happening in Nazareth, everything happening in Capernaum. Read through all through the chapter. Sick people are healed, demon-possessed. People are are put at liberty and at peace of mind. It's, It's a wonderful example of what happens, what we want to happen in Winchester Passion, that lives are changed and communities are transformed. I was preaching at a new church up in Lincolnshire and heard the story of a couple He was a bus driver. He and his wife had become Christians. And when they bought the land, the bus driver that was on his route, and he saw, first of all, a piece of land 
then a building going up and eventually he realised it was a church. And he said to his wife, when that church is open, that's the church we're going to. And the day I was there, they gave their testimony. And she came up, woman in her 60s, and she said, when I was six years of age, my mother looked at me and said, you are useless, you should have been born a boy. And she said, I carried that tag for the rest of my life until just short of my 60th birthday, somebody introduced me to a person called Jesus who said, you're not useless, you're useful. And my life was changed. Some of you here could keep us here until 2 o'clock this morning telling the stories of how Jesus changes lives. But he not only changes lives, he transforms communities. When something happens in Capernaum, the whole town gets to hear about it. When things are going to happen in Winchester, it's unbelievable. Lord, just open our hearts of faith to understand what you're going to do through Winchester Passion. And this final story to encourage you with how God transforms whole communities. Just over a year ago, as Ewan uh, mentioned, I was in Bethlehem. Uh, Four of us, four church leaders, uh, Archbishop Rowan, Cardinal Cormac, Bishop Nathan and myself went to Bethlehem to show solidarity with the Christians of Bethlehem. We, in fact, had a reunion dinner last Monday, and we were saying how just this Christmas past we were reliving. It's a powerful thing to be in Bethlehem right around Christmas Eve. While we were there, we met, um, and you could find this on the web, the pastor of the Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem, Mitri Rahib. He's written a very excellent book called Bethlehem Besieged. And... I want you to know where I'm coming from. I I pray for Jerusalem. I pray for the peace of Israel. But I'll tell you here, this evening, any Christian here who prays for Israel without praying for Palestine, you're not in step with God's heart. Some of the things that Palestinian Christians say to me, I want the security of Israel. But they say, can you remind Christians in the West, in your country, the United Kingdom, that there are Arab Christians who are part of their family. And to somehow exclude them from your prayers. If we're going to be peacemakers with the outstretched arms of the Jesus who died to reconcile, we've got to be in the middle. We can have all our prayers for Israel, but we must never neglect to pray for Arab Christians. Bethlehem is a a terribly sad town. Pilgrims no longer go there. And I would challenge Winchester, not only hold a passion here, but at some point in the year, send a delegation representing you to Bethlehem and promise me, stay overnight in Bethlehem. So many pilgrims drop in for two hours, go and see the sights and move away. Stay overnight and bless them economically. Christians have lost their jobs as hotel keepers, guest house owners and restaurant owners, gift shop owners. Why? Because people don't go there. If they do go, it's in and out. It's safe to go. The whole world is the terrorist playground. You don't have to go to Bethlehem to be somebody in danger. And I was introduced to the story of this couple who had been rendered unemployed. The hotel had closed, the restaurant was closed, the gift shop was closed. They would cast on the mercy of the church. And one day the lady was going through the streets of Bethlehem. And she just looked down and heard God speaking to her. All around her was broken glass caused by bombs and bullets and She heard a voice saying to her, pick this glass up. She had a bag. She put the glass very carefully into the bag. She came home, poured the glass out on the table, 
called her husband in, told him what God had said, and they called round a friend who was a glass artist. And that glass artist took that broken glass away and made this, not this, but a beautiful glass angel like this. In fact, what happened was he taught them how they could make out of something broken something very beautiful. And eventually, a number of people were employed in making tiny glass angels and nativity scenes. And if you go online, as a number of my friends have done and gone online, you can see the employment and the richness that has come to that town of Bethlehem through that just one gift shop. But the pastor said this to me, said, you know what was more powerful? It was not only a blessing economically and that poor people were helped and given jobs and a trade, but as they worked together, working, building these glass, wonderful glass images, God spoke to them and said, this is a parable of the gospel. That this is what Jesus came to do. That the changing of lives and the transforming of communities, the blessing of people in economic ways, releasing them from the captivity of poverty and and loosing them from the sins that had bound them down. It's as we put the broken pieces of our lives into his hands that he can make something beautiful out of our brokenness. As we come to the final part of our service, I want us to do just two things. And they're, they're both, you know, very simple things, really. I want us just, in a simple act, if you feel able to do this, just open your hands now in an attitude of, of prayer. And just offer the prayer with me. Lord, as we place into your hands the parts of our lives that are broken and need mending, make something beautiful out of this brokenness we pray as we place into your hands right now those parts of our family life that we know are broken we place them where we can place them nowhere else into your hands make something beautiful out of this brokenness as we place our business and work lives our monday to friday callings And all those bits that we know are broken, they're working. But there are bits that we have just left on the floor. We now pick up those broken pieces and we put them into your hands and say, will you make them into something beautiful out of the brokenness of work life? And we're doing this because if we, through Winchester Passion, if our greatest desire is to see broken lives made beautiful, then we want the Lord to work on our brokenness as well. We're not the perfect ones. We are the ones being made perfect. So Lord, go on mending us, we pray. That's our prayer. And this perhaps is a bit more difficult. It comes back to what David said. You know how he challenged you to think of three people. I can't imagine that there wasn't at some point names that immediately came into your mind. And I just felt as a closing act, we're safe, we're family together. I wonder whether we could just, in a moment, as the Lord leads you, stand for three people, three people you already know, or just stand and say, Lord, I'm ready for you to write on my heart the names of three people who love me, respect me, trust me as a Christian. They wouldn't hear the news about Jesus through anybody else except me. By your spirit, Lord, even now begin to write those names on our hearts. And I wonder, could you just in a moment stand?
in a moment of commitment. It's a sign and a pledge to God that you're serious about probably what will be the most difficult part of Winchester Passion. So let's do that just now. If you feel able to stand and make that pledge, Lord, I'm going to pray for three people. You may not know the three people, but it's all going to hang on this, isn't it? You heard the challenge. We're not just doing things